In a single day, Jesus institutes the sacrament, teaches prayer in his name, bestows keys for the gift of the Holy Ghost, and introduces many other practices of his modern church. I'm Mark Holt, and this is Gospel Doctrine. Welcome to Gospel Doctrine, your Come Follow Me podcast. Today's lesson is 3 Nephi chapters 17 through 19. Behold, my joy is full. We have a question today. This comes from Merlene. She asks, What is the difference between receiving the Holy Ghost and receiving the baptism of fire? Were the Lamanites spoken of in 3 Nephi chapter 9 verse 20 receiving their baptism of fire? If you remember in chapter 9, the Lamanites are spoken of as having received the gift of the Holy Ghost by this voice, this disembodied voice that is speaking to all the Nephites during the destruction of their lands and their cities. This disembodied voice tells them that the Lamanites, because of their belief, they'd received the gift of the Holy Ghost in the baptism of fire, and they knew it not. Uh, The specific words were used were, The Lamanites, because of their faith in me at the time of their conversion, were baptized with fire and with the Holy Ghost, and they knew it not. Merlene's question continues. Also, does Christ perform the baptism of fire as suggested in that same scripture? And what does that look like for each of us personally? Quote, And whoso cometh unto me with a broken heart and a contrite spirit, him will I baptize with fire and with the Holy Ghost. Thanks for that question, Merlene. And I'm going to give you a partial answer right now, but actually I'll be answering that question uh, all during the entire lesson today because we're going to speak a lot about the Spirit and the baptism of fire. In fact, it's a perfect question for this lesson today because in this lesson is where Jesus Christ gives the keys to his disciples for bestowing the gift of the Holy Ghost. And before I go into too much detail, I'm going to point you at an article in the Ensign from June uh, June 1995, and you can download that right in your Gospel Library app. You go into magazines and then search for 1995 and download the June issue. This is an article by Elder Lauren C. Dunn entitled Fire and the Holy Ghost. And so I'm going to take your last question first. Does Christ perform the baptism of fire? In other words, does he do it personally? Uh, Who gives the gift of the Holy Ghost? Now, interestingly enough, if you pay attention to the words of the prayer, the, the ordination or the, the actual ordinance of giving the gift of the Holy Ghost, the words are, I say unto you, receive the Holy Ghost. The words are not, I give unto you the Holy Ghost. So your question is actually quite a good one. Uh, it's, it's very in- intuitive because Jesus Christ, we probably don't think about this very much, but Jesus Christ is the one who actually gives the gift of the Holy Ghost. Or more accurately, Jesus Christ petitions the Father that he will send the Holy Ghost. This is God interacting directly with you. Uh, To answer your first question, the baptism of fire and the gift of the Holy Ghost are the same event. They're used sort of interchangeably, but the the metaphor is more powerful when it's called the baptism of fire. 
you may remember that Nicodemus asked Jesus Christ in John chapter 3 what it meant to be born again. And Jesus said, even so much as you're born of blood and water and the Spirit when you're when you're born physically, you have to be born of blood, water, and the Spirit when you're born into the gospel. And so being born of blood is to receive the atonement, being born of water is to be baptized, and being born of the Spirit is to receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. So there are different metaphors and different descriptions used for describing the way that this gift is given. One of them is to be baptized by the Spirit. One of them is to be baptized with fire. And you, I think the fire metaphor will make more sense as we go throughout the lesson today, because there are a lot of things that bring that fire metaphor in. And uh, if you still have questions at the end, then I recommend that, that Enzyme article to you. Thank you for that question, Merlene. And I have a second question this week. This comes from Dallas. And Dallas says, quick comment about this week's podcast when you were talking about the mist of darkness that no light could be seen in. When I was on my mission, the last part of my mission, they sent me to Yerevan, Armenia. At the time, there was war in Chechnya and Azerbaijan, and there was limited resources, food, gas, and electricity. They'd turn on the water and power for an hour or two a day in the city if we were lucky, and that was it. The first week I was there, there was an incredible fog. My flight there was delayed 20 hours because no one could see anything. The first night, my companion and I were walking home with flashlights. The fog was so thick that I could not see my flashlight touching the ground in front of me. Twice, there was a car with its headlights pointed straight at me that I could not see until it was maybe 15 or 20 feet in front of me, shining its headlights directly at us. The hand in front of face test showed that we couldn't see that either. We could feel the darkness. I believe this is what it was describing in the Book of Mormon before Christ's visit. Add some possible volcanic ash, and it would have been worse. So there's an eyewitness account that fog could account for this darkness uh, that occurred around the time of the destruction following Christ's death. And if you can imagine following uh, a fire, an earthquake, a flood with this kind of fog and having it last three days, if the power were out and once the batteries in your flashlight give out, once your phone gives out and you can't get a hold of anyone, this would truly be scary. We had a number of messages from the Living Prophets in conference this time to talk to us about checking the state of our uh, preparedness. And that doesn't mean that Jesus Christ has to have his second coming for us to be prepared. It means that there, there could be all kinds of reasons why we might need to have some food laid by, some stores, a 72-hour kit. There could be all kinds of reasons. So this is a good time to gauge our preparedness and test where we're at so that we can see how we're following those words of the prophets. Thanks for that question, Dallas. If you have a question, if uh, any question at all that re- requires an answer from the scriptures, send me an email at gt at gospeltoctrine.com. We have a very special lesson today. Uh, it's, in my opinion, even more special than the one we had last week, which I called the culmination of the entire Book of Mormon. But the truth is that uh, this culmination continues. A lot of general authorities call it the fifth gospel, but this culmination continues for several lessons, several weeks of our Come Follow Me lessons, because Jesus Christ spends a good deal of time with the Nephites. But we're still, today, two-thirds of our lesson, we're, we're covering three chapters, and two of those chapters are still still dealing with the first day of Jesus Christ's visit. So that uh, that day that begins... In 3 Nephi chapter 11, it's still continuing, and it goes all the way through 3 Nephi chapter 18. 
Now, as we begin here in chapter 17, Jesus has already accomplished those things that he feels like he should have done, and he lets everyone know, it's time for me now to depart. And so the the lesson begins, or this chapter begins, as Jesus announces his departure. He says, look, I'm going to come back tomorrow, and in the meantime, I perceive that you haven't under you haven't been capable of understanding everything that I would want to give you, and so here's the plan. Uh, before I say the plan, I I want to just have us to think about a moment about what are the earthly reactions to not understanding gospel messages, uh, and I think this is an especially appropriate time to ask this question. Uh, you may be listening to this, uh, you almost definitely will be listening to this a little later on. For me, I'm right in between conference sessions. And so there's no question that I have received more today than I'm capable of taking in, than I'm capable of understanding. There's no way that I get all the layers of everything that I'm receiving, and that's going to happen again tomorrow. And so there are a couple of earthly reactions that, or maybe you could say carnal reactions to this sort of phenomenon. The first one is to wrongly assume that we do understand everything. Uh, and that's sort of the, the childlike reaction. Oh, yeah, I got it. Sure. Thanks, you know, thanks, um, President Nelson. Thank you, apostles. Thank you, general authorities, general officers of the church. Appreciate the talk. Yeah, I totally understood that. That is sort of a level one reaction. A level two reaction is to recognize, wow, there is so much going on here, and there's no way I can take it all in, and I feel very overwhelmed. So either of those two reactions is sort of uh, what Satan would want to happen, or what our flesh would bring upon us, what the natural man would do with uh, an overabundance of gospel significance to a lesson. And Jesus has a third way here. He says, look, I perceive that you are weak. You can't understand everything right now, so I've got a plan for you. And verse 3 tells us this third way. This plan is, go, go ye into your homes, ponder upon the... I'm going to just read this verse, and then I'll talk about the parts of it. Therefore, go ye into your homes and ponder upon the things which I have said, and ask of the Father in my name that ye may understand, and prepare your minds for the morrow. And I come unto you again. So the first, the first part of this third way is to give it a little bit of time. And then with that time, mix in some faith. So the faith has to tell you, all right, I'm willing to believe that I am capable of understanding more than I do now. And in fact, I'm willing to ha- exercise this faith to the point of praying to God in Jesus' name. Now, a quick note about that. The Nephites, up until this point, we don't have any evidence that they've been praying to the Father in the name of Jesus. This is new. Uh, And you can, to verify this, just read back. Next time you read through the Book of Mormon, watch for this. They are not praying. We don't have evidence, at least, that they're praying to God, the Father, in the name of Jesus. They're probably just praying, God, you know, holy God, help me. And one small example is the Zoramites, when they were praying on the Ramiumptum, And obviously this is an apostate prayer, but they're not praying in the name of anything. They just say, holy, holy God, right? We thank thee that that we are different from our brethren. And the, the Nephites weren't thinking to themselves, wow, they're not praying in the name of Jesus Christ. They were thinking, wow, the content of this prayer 
is wrong. And there are other evidences and other examples of prayers. That's one counterexample. But the Nephites, it's my belief that the Nephites were not used to praying in the name of Jesus Christ, which is sort of interesting to think about. Uh, I'm not trying to make a larger point with that, just to say, here is the first time where he says, look, pray unto the Father in my name. Use my name when you pray, and that will recommend you to the Father. So, so far we have, uh, in this third way of Jesus, to understand when we have too much information or we're not yet prepared for the messages that God would send unto us. Give it some time. Exercise faith. Prayer, pray unto the Father in the name of Jesus. Finally, he says, uh, and ask, obviously. He's just told them that they can ask and receive. Finally, he says, prepare your minds. So, uh, preparing our minds is to adopt an attitude of humility and perhaps even study. So he asks them to go ponder it and prepare their minds. So maybe humble themselves that they can receive the message, but also prepare their minds by putting more information in there and giving themselves the ability to interpret in that way. So they have to do some work. They have to exercise faith, time, prayer, and work. This is the third way of Jesus to understand when we receive more that in a gospel sense, and I think this would work for a lot of things, but specifically for a gospel message that we're not ready for. If we receive more than we're ready for, then we exercise faith, give it some time, be willing to put in some work, and then engage the Father in mighty prayer in the name of Jesus. Now, Jesus is about to depart. He's given him this message, and then he looks around. In verse 5, he, he cast his eyes round about again on the multitude, and he beheld they were in tears and did look steadfastly upon him as if they would ask him to tarry a little longer with them. This is such a touching verse. And I'm sure that each of us, if we had been present on that day, that we would have all reacted the same way. We would have looked steadfastly on Jesus. None of us would ever dare to say, uh, you've got the wrong idea, Jesus. You shouldn't leave right now. But we would all watch him and, and just wish that he could remain a little longer. To me, this brings up uh, one of my favorite hymns, or I, I should say just one of my favorite parts of a hymn is in the hymn, Master, the Tempest is Raging. And at the end of the hymn, the person singing has gone through this ordeal and has called upon uh, God to get him through it or get her through it. And the ordeal has passed, but then the words, we sing the words linger O blessed Redeemer. And those words are the same feeling, which is, I know, God, you were here for me. I really needed you. And now the, sweet, uh, the sweetness of your presence, I, would, I wish it could remain. And so linger, O blessed Redeemer. If you've ever had a, a sweet spiritual experience, one that, you, in, that left no room for doubt, that you had the visitation, the presence of God was upon you, you feel the love of God, uh, that that very delicious closeness of the Spirit, then, for me at least, maybe you're like me, almost immediately as soon as I feel it, I think, oh man, I hope that this lasts a long time. And I think sometimes that nervousness can even drive it away, and which is a little bit sad. But, uh, you know, we the, I do, nevertheless, even though it doesn't help, I think, oh, I wish this could last. I know it's going to be short-lived. And so I love that 
that phrase in the hymn, Master, the Tempest is Raging, linger, O blessed Redeemer. That's the way these Nephites are feeling. So what what does Jesus say? He said, behold, my bowels are filled with compassion towards you. Now I want to take a look at the word compassion. First of all, most of us in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, we don't use the word passion the way it's used in the rest of the Christian world. But maybe you've heard of the, the movie, The Passion of the Christ. If you grew up in the church as I did, you were probably an adult before you understood what passion means to other Christians. In the modern world, we use the word passion most of the time. If you hear the word passion, it has to do with a romantic attachment. But it can also, uh, it can also be used a lot, hey, you've got to follow your passion. So it's either, it's either a synonym for romantic love or for enthusiasm, some sort of uh, vocation, a calling that you feel in life. This was not the original meaning of the word passion. Passion, uh, a lot of scholars believe that the word passion came into Latin from Greek, uh, an attempt to carry over the word pathos from Greek, which means emotion, strong emotion. But in Latin, it means suffering. It means specifically that kind of suffering, that that which must be born. And so the passion of the Christ is Jesus Christ's burden, his emotional burden, and especially all of his suffering, and it includes his physical suffering. That is what passion meant for centuries, and actually for more than a thousand years after the birth of Christ. And it wasn't until the 16th century that it sort of took on the meaning of romantic love, and it wasn't until the 18th century that we have evidence that uh, it meant any sort of enthusiasm or a calling in life. So up until that point, for, for many centuries, it had the sole meaning that it was the suffering of Jesus Christ, and then it was extended to include the suffering of the martyrs. So when Jesus says compassion, whenever you see those that uh, prefix, prefix C-O-M or C-O-N, Remember, the condescension of God is God descending to be with us. C-O-M means with. So Jesus is suffering. He is bearing that which must be born. He is feeling the pain of separation, not only from his own side. He loves his children, and he doesn't want to leave them. But he also feels it from their side. He feels the pain that they must be feeling, thinking about him leaving. He's been, they've been through so much, the Their entire world has been turned upside down and destroyed. And here they are gathered at the temple. The the dreams, the hopes and aspirations of every Nephite for millennia is now finally being realized. And now suddenly, it has to feel suddenly, it's probably been several hours, but suddenly then Jesus is leaving again. And so they're suffering. I would would be suffering too at the thought. And it's got to be acute and intense. And Jesus feels it for all of them. And so that's why he says, my bowels are filled with compassion towards you. I want to draw your attention here in 3 Nephi 17, verses 6 and 7. We have a nice little chiasm here. And this is really interesting because this is Jesus himself giving it to us. So Jesus is engaging in one of the techniques of oral teaching that is popular among the Nephites. Uh, we, We have evidence just by the fact that they have in such a detailed way recorded 
the words of Jesus. It's almost certain that no one was sitting down writing simultaneously what Jesus was saying. What probably, what's more likely to be the case is that the Nephites were simply a people that were trained to remember things that they heard and be able to write them down later. And part of that skill comes from teachers, speakers, being trained to impart things in a way that's easily remembered. Chiasmus is one of those forms. So here we have, my bowels are filled with compassion towards you. It, you can match up my bowels, and, and bowels is the uh, believed to be the seat of emotions. It's, it doesn't have the same meaning in the scriptures as it does in modern medicine, so it's a, it can be a little distracting if you think about it too much, but it actually, they would have believed this to be within their chest, right? My bowels are filled with compassion. It's the, it's the seat of the emotional brain. That's what they believed about their bowels. So that's what that word means when you see it in the Bible. And Joseph Smith would have taken that usage and put it into his translation of the Book of Mormon. So my bowels here, and then again, at the end of verse 7, my bowels are filled with mercy. So that, that's sort of the beginning and the end of this chiasm. And then you see, if you go forward on the, in verse 6 and backward in the end of verse 7, you find compassion. And then at the beginning of verse 7, and a little bit backwards from compassion, you see sick and heal, and those sort of match each other. And then you see, bring. if you go forward and back again, you see bring them hither. So this chiasm has several uh, levels to it. It has at least five levels to it. And in the middle we have, have ye any that are lame or blind or halt or maimed or leprous or that are withered or that are deaf? or that are afflicted in any manner. So that's sort of the center of the chiasm, are all these afflictions and sicknesses. And the point is that Jesus Christ is greater than any of the earthly maladies or afflictions that commonly torment us. Jesus has risen above all of these things. That's the point that he's making by teaching this in this way. In verse 8, here's another poetical form, and it's, uh, again, a common form of poetry among Hebrew speakers in Hebrew-derived languages is to re- repeat either a rhetorical form, express the same idea using different words, or repeat a pattern. So pay attention here in verse 8. It's really interesting. And this is something that I got from this chiasm and this form here in verse 8. I got again from John Welch. I told you last week about his book, illuminating the Sermon on the Mount and the Sermon at the Temple. And you can find that book on Amazon, but you can also find the text of that book uh, on uh, in the Scholar's Archive of BYU.edu. So if you don't want to buy the book, if you don't want to have a print copy, you can just download that as a PDF from the BYU website. But uh, John Welch, who's a prominent LDS scholar, wrote about this idea that Jesus is creating an intimate connection with the Nephites here by saying, I and you, I and you, over and over again. So I'm going to read verse 8, emphasizing those pronouns. For I perceive that ye desire that I should show unto you what I have done unto your brethren at Jerusalem. For I see that your faith is sufficient, that I should heal you. Do you see that I and you in order? Jesus never says I twice in a row, and he never says you twice in a row. Five times, he goes back and forth between I and you, I and you. 
So Jesus is saying, I feel your pain. I have compassion towards you. I feel everything that you're feeling, and I perceive. I can understand your thoughts. Uh, One of the interesting talks today in the Saturday morning session, Sister Craig talked about the importance of being seen and being willing to see others the way that God sees us. So one of the true gifts of Jesus, one of the things that he gives us and one of the gifts that he has to give us is the ability for him to see us. And I think this, these three verses, 6, 7, and 8, show us those in a very deep way. Verse 10, so Jesus has asked them to bring forth all of their afflicted people, and then he heals them one by one. And in verse 10, this is their response. They, they all, both, both they who'd been healed and they who were whole, they bowed down at his feet and they kissed his feet and they bathed his feet with their tears. Now, we've seen this before. We've seen this in the Gospels. But it was one or two people out of multitudes of people, right? Um, one of them is Luke chapter 7, where this woman who's a sinner that Jesus has forgiven and probably healed, and uh, she comes to Jesus when he is at the home of Simon the Pharisee, and she bathes his feet with her tears. But she is one woman amidst a crowd of people who are suspicious of Jesus. And here among the Nephites, uh, it is the entire multitude who feel this way. So just imagine the attitude of this woman uh, who was sort of alone in the, ho- in the home of Simon the Pharisee, alone willing to worship Jesus and just bathe his feet with her tears. And among the Nephites, it is everyone who feels this way. So when Jesus begins praying, which he does in the next few verses, first he asks the Nephites to bring their children. And uh, he doesn't immediately bless the children. When, uh, As I was reading this, I thought, okay, the children are here. He's going to start blessing them right away. And I was a little surprised since it's been a few, uh, it's been a while since I read this chapter, um, that he didn't bless them right away. He brings the children, and they everyone gathers around, and then he actually just says a prayer, and the prayer is for the adults. Now, that's the interesting part. But he, uh, he begins this prayer by saying, I'm troubled because of the wickedness of the people of the house of Israel. And what I take from this is that Jesus is contrasting the reception that he that he got in Israel with the reception that he's getting among the Nephites. So we're meant to pay attention to this. Jesus is now, they, they are treating him the way that he always should have been treated. We, we read several times in the scriptures, if I had done the works that I've done among you anywhere else, they, <laughs> they would never have treated me the way you're treating me. Jesus said this over and over to the Jews. And in the Book of Mormon, we have the words, there is no other nation that would have crucified or slain their God. So that wickedness is what Jesus is trying to highlight here. And by contrast, we can see the righteousness of the Nephites. So in verse 15, he begins this wonderful prayer. And the only thing that we have, the only description we have of it, is that the eye hath never seen, neither hath the ear heard before, so great and marvelous things as we saw and heard Jesus speak unto the Father. No tongue can speak. Neither can there be written by any man, neither can the hearts of men conceive so great and marvelous things as we both saw and heard Jesus speak. So I'm going to talk a little bit about this. What exactly was the content of this prayer? Obviously, impossible to know. But there are three reasons why people would be unable to write this. I've I've wondered throughout my life, 
What could this possibly mean that nobody could write it down? How could anyone give a prayer that someone later on couldn't just write down? First of all, uh, we talked last week about how the Sermon on the Mount and by extension the Sermon at the Temple was actually a temple text. So Jesus was giving an initiation to the Nephites of sacred things that they would thereafter teach in the temple. And he also gave them he said, cast not your pearls before swine. He, you know, put not your precious things before the dogs, right? So this is a, an admonition to secrecy for sacred things. Only give your sacred things to those who have been prepared. And so it's possible one reason that the people could not write the words of the prayers of Jesus was that it was too sacred and they were under a covenant presumably that they entered into later, or perhaps that they just felt from the Spirit, not to reveal it. And therefore, nobody felt like it would ever be appropriate to record the content of this prayer. That's one possibility. A second possibility, again, hearkening back to uh, 3 Nephi chapter 9, you'll remember that after the destruction that came about at the time of Jesus's crucifixion, everyone is trapped in darkness, and at that point a voice comes unto them that is later identified, that it later identifies itself as Jesus. But individually, each person hears this voice throughout all of the land. So we know that Jesus has the power to speak to everyone's hearts at once. And so the second possibility here is that everybody's getting their own individual prayer. They're all hearing something different, and that would be reasonable that would be a reasonable way for God to act because God is going to give different messages to us depending on our level of preparation, our needs, and a lot of it will have to do with the, the, our particular mission here on earth. The third possibility is that there is just so much information passing between God and the people watching him pray. For, for this analogy, I think of it this way. Some of you may remember, if you're old enough, you might remember this. Uh, For those of you who are not old enough, you'll take my description, you'll take my word for it. But in the early days of the internet, people would dial up. They would use their phone line, and they would connect it to their computer, and they would dial up. And early on, they would get something like 22,000 bits per second, which is several thousand times slower than we do it today. Uh, Over time, phone lines or computers got better at putting data onto phone lines, but but the data rate sort of maxed out at 56K. And if you had a special piece of hardware, then you could put two phone lines and you could plug them in and they became what was called an ISDN line. And you could get 112,000, 112 kilobits per second on your on your internet connection. And this was considered the state of the art. If you had uh, an office where there was broadband connection, then you could have what was called a T1 line. And that T1 line was 1.5 megabits per second. If you had one of those, then you considered yourself to be living in the lap of luxury. Now today, you and I, we probably, if you're, if you're living in a developed country, you probably enjoy an internet connection that is at least a thousand times faster than that ISDN line, and perhaps even 10 or 100 thousand times faster. So 100 megabits per second. Um, I, I know many people that have that. I don't quite have that myself, but we all of us 
have experienced at least connections that are faster. And when I read of the visions of prophets like Nephi, of Enoch, of Moses, we have accounts of these prophets, uh, especially Moses, when it says that he saw the creations of God and there was not a particle of this world that he did not behold, right? That is so much information passing into the mind of the prophet that God had to have a greater bit of bandwidth into their minds in order to impart this much information. Using normal methods, it would take a lifetime to give somebody a lifetime worth of information. But the prophet sees every person. They see every particle. They see all of God's creations. They therefore have to have a greater bit of spiritual bandwidth in order to receive all of this information in so short a time. So these are the three reasons that Jesus' prayer would have been unrecordable. Number one, the sacredness of it. Number two, the individual tailored nature of it. And number three, so much information that it's impossible to convey. I believe each of these people would have seen things that had to do with what God wanted specifically from them, perhaps an insight into who they were before they came and what God intended them to do after they left this earth, and perhaps even a greater insight into those around them, the angels that were supporting them. God would have given them all kinds of information, I believe, because Jesus is present there with them, and their faith is just rising astronomically with every minute that passes by. So those are the possibilities. And if you want to think about what the, what it would be like to be there and experience this prayer, then those are the three ways that you might consider what this prayer would have been like. That's my opinion. But it's at the end of, the, of verse 17 when we learn that Jesus isn't here praying for the children. He's praying for us. In other words, the, the witnesses recorded, these are the parents. They've all brought their children, and the children are close around Jesus. But then the parents record, There's no, we've never experienced anything like what we felt when Jesus prayed for us unto the Father. Then, it, then comes the experience when Jesus prays for the little children. But before that happens, he says, uh, Jesus arises and says, Behold, my joy is full. Now, this is an interesting phrase. We're going to stop here and spend a few minutes talking about this phrase. And the first place we're going to go is to Psalm 16. Now, Psalm 16 is a messianic psalm of David, but it's also considered the, the psalm the, of, in which you ask the questions that prepare you to visit the temple. Uh, if you're a Jew, Am I ritually pure? How do I feel? How does God feel towards me, and how do I feel towards God? Am I prepared mentally and spiritually to go into the temple? At the end of this psalm, David says, Thou wilt show me the path of life. In thy presence is fullness of joy. At thy right hand there are pleasures forevermore. So that's how this psalm ends. In thy presence is fullness of joy. So when Jesus Christ says, Behold, my joy is full, it's possible that the first place that the minds of the, at least the, the well-studied among the Nephites would have gone would have been to Psalm 16. Another place it could go, we've talked about, if you, if you were with us when we discussed the Old Testament, or even many times when we're talking about the New Testament and hearkening back to the Old, you may remember this idea of the Shekinah. And the Shekinah is not uh, a word that is used anywhere in the Old Testament. Nevertheless, it was used in many rabbinical writings to describe the presence of the Lord. 
Now, we have an accounts of the presence of the Lord filling certain places. The first one comes about in, well, obviously the first one is in the, uh, the Garden of Eden, but in relation to the Israelites, the first one comes about in Exodus chapter 13, when they are leaving Egypt, and before their face goes this cloud of pillar, or this pillar of cloud by day, pillar of fire by night. So here we get back to the idea that Marlene brought up uh, in her question this week was, what does it mean to be baptized by fire and by the Holy Ghost? So fire is a symbol of the presence of God. And smoke, or uh, this cloud, cloud and smoke are often used interchangeably. But uh, smoke or cloud is also used as a symbol of the presence of God. Where there's smoke, there's fire. You might think of it that way. So before the face of these Israelites goes this cloud that says God is with them, protecting them. And later on in 1 Kings chapter 8, this is where Solomon has finally finished the temple that uh, God has promised to his line that somebody is going to get to build a house in his name. Finally, this wandering tabernacle uh, gets a permanent home. And so Solomon spends years and uh, the equivalent of what today would probably be billions of dollars building this temple. It's the most amazing building that anyone has ever heard of. And he does it according to, first of all, they put all their precious things there, but also according to the original blueprint that is given to Moses. And it's just expanded upon that. And this cloud rushes in. As it says in uh, 1 Kings chapter 8, you, the equivalent is... 2 Corinthians chapter 5, I believe, but you can see here in verse 10, it came to pass when the priests were come out of the holy place, which is part of the temple, that the cloud filled the house of the Lord so that the priests could not stand to minister because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord had filled the house of the Lord. Uh, We can get another indication of this. You may remember Isaiah, when he was called as a prophet, his first vision was of him being caught up into the temple. And this would not have happened, probably didn't happen physically. Or if it did, uh, he, he was carried there by the Spirit. He didn't walk into the temple because he was not one of the priestly line and therefore would not have been permitted in the temple. It was death to, it was not only death uh, in a civil way, but Jews would have believed that God would strike you dead if you walked into the temple without being one of the priests that was called to minister there. And so uh, Isaiah, in his vision, finds himself in the temple, and he says, I'm not worthy. And this is where God purifies him with a coal, uh, a, a piece of incense from the altar in the temple, and it's placed upon his lips, and he finds himself worthy to be there once God purifies him. So fire fills the temple. In verse 3, well, first of all, in verse 2, he sees these angels surrounding God. God's train, his, the hem of his garment, has filled the temple. And this is symbolic of God's glory. And in uh, verse 3, this becomes, this, this becomes explicit. The, the whole earth is full of his glory. In verse 4, the posts of the door moved at the voice of him that cried. In other words, this angel, the voice was so powerful as they're telling each other of the holiness of God that it shakes the very foundations of the building they're in. And the house was filled with smoke. So Isaiah is a prophet. He's witnessing God 
suspended in the air over the top of the Ark of the Covenant, and the whole house is filled with smoke. This is the Shekinah. It means dwelling. When God is in the temple, when God is present, then this cloud of smoke symbolizes that God is there, physically there. Uh, as, as physical as God can get, that's what the smoke means. In modern Revelation, we have this in the 84th section of the Doctrine and Covenants. Beginning in verse 4, we have, Verily, this is the word of the Lord, that the new city, Jerusalem, uh, I'm sorry, that the city, New Jerusalem, shall be built by the gathering of the saints, beginning at this place, even the place of the temple, which temple shall be reared in this generation. For verily, this generation shall not all pass away, until an house shall be built unto the Lord, and a cloud shall rest upon it, which cloud shall be even the glory of the Lord, which shall fill the house. So now we return to Third Nephi. Jesus has just said, my, behold, my joy is full. Now, what does this have to do? How do, we, how do we relate this to the smoke, to the Shekinah, to the presence of God? There are a few other words I want to make you familiar with in Hebrew. Uh, one of them is ruach. So ruach means breath or spirit. And this, uh, this is the wind that would blow the smoke into the temple. So if you recall that Adam was, he was, made, he was a vessel made out of clay, and then God said, we will breathe into man his spirit. In other words, we will give him his breath. The breath and the spirit are the same word in Hebrew. And if the, if the body is the framework, and, the, and it's not alive until the ruach is inside of it, then the temple is, a, is the tabernacle. That is the word that is used in the New Testament. And that also means dwelling place. So once the dwelling place and the ruach are in the same place, then you have what's called the shekinah. So the temple is the, or I'm sorry, the tabernacle is the body, and the cloud is the breath. And this is the body of God upon the earth. This is where heaven and earth overlap. Now Jesus is, is also the temple. Paul made this very clear in his epistles in the New Testament. He, draw, he drew parallels over and over again, specifically in Hebrew chapter, Hebrews chapter 8, but in many places where he said that Jesus is the place where God and man overlap, and the temple is the place where heaven and earth overlap. The temple is simply a symbol of the holiness of Jesus. Wherever Jesus is, that is the Shekinah, that is the temple, that is the tabernacle. However, when Jesus says, my joy is full, he's pointing us to all, he's, he's sending the, the learned Nephites on this entire trail. And the proof of this, we have to jump forward a little bit for it. But the proof of this is that at the end of chapter 17, that, I'm sorry, the end of chapter 18, when Jesus leaves them, this is the end of his first day of preaching, uh, when he's ready to go, then a cloud covers the disciples and Jesus and envelops them. The disciples see Jesus ascend into heaven, but everyone else just sees the cloud come, and then they see the cloud disperse. And when the cloud is gone, Jesus is gone. Now, what does all of this mean? It is my opinion from all of this, just, just putting all of these things together, what this tells me is that Jesus, when he's praying, they all are having this wonderful experience with the prayer uh, that Jesus is dedicating the temple. Because what have, we just, what have we just experienced before this? Jesus has taught them a temple text. What does he do when 
He's done giving them the doctrines, the practices that they will carry with them, the, the practice of baptism. How will they worship now that their blood sacrifices are no longer acceptable? Uh, he's given them all these teachings, and then he interacts with each of them one-on-one, and he heals them. You may recall that I've said uh, over the past several weeks, the word for heal in the, in the New Testament is the same word as the word for forgive. So Jesus, when he, he's doing the same thing when he heals us spiritually or physically. It, it's one and the same. His job is the same thing, which is to, bring, is to make us whole. And so Jesus has done this thing where he interacts. Now think about what you do before you go to the temple. You interact with a priesthood leader one-on-one, and you have this experience where if you're not worthy to go into the temple, you go undergo a process to make you worthy. And then you show proof of that worthiness as you present yourself at the temple. So Jesus is preparing the people to enter into the temple, and then he prays with them. He gives these children, he blesses the children one by one. He gives them their patriarchal blessings, which is what I believe has to be happening there, right? What else would he bless them with? But this is, this is what your life will contain. This is where you're headed. This, these are the, the future gifts that I bestow upon you. And so Jesus is bringing all of the elements of, that, we, that we consider part of the modern gospel. He's bringing them in a single day to the Nephites, and we'll see more of them. But uh, that's what I believe is going on, is that Jesus is dedicating this temple of verse 20. He says, my joy is full, because now I'm in the presence of God. God, the presence is here. We're outside the temple, but this entire space, there, there's no way everybody could fit inside this temple, especially not if it was in the ancient Hebrew style. And so this courtyard around the temple is where everyone is gathered, and it's all a sacred, consecrated space, and Jesus has dedicated it now. Um, and again, this fits with his contrast. You'll remember that at the time that Jesus was crucified, at the moment of his death, the veil of the temple split from top to bottom, signifying the passing of authority out of that temple, the departure of the Shekinah. And now here what we have is, uh, we don't have an evidence that this temple was rejected in the same way. So it may be that the temple considered, uh, I'm sorry, continued to be valid uh, as far as that as far as that goes and yet there was no there was no permitted use for it because they did not know yet what to do there other than blood sacrifice and the law of Moses had passed away and so this temple needed a rededication it needed number 1 new doctrines it needed a new purpose but then it also needed a priesthood rededication for it to be useful again for it to be holy for it to be consecrated so jesus has done all of these things he's taught them what to do in the temple and now he's given them a building to do it in now when he blesses the little ones uh in verse 21 this begins and these are patriarchal blessings in my opinion and they're encircled with angels and with fire so again here comes the baptism of fire metaphor these children are literally immersed in glory of God that looks like fire. So again, the glory of God appears to be something like smoke or like fire. And all of that is just chapter 17. Moving on to chapter 18, in verses 1 through 9, Jesus institutes the sacrament. Now, what an audience of uh, followers of the law of Moses would have taken from all this, they probably probably would have associated the bread that Jesus brought them with the show the shoe bread of the temple 
and which the only the high priest was allowed to eat. It was placed daily in the holy place of the temple as part of the worship. And uh, now instead of these 12 loaves of shoe bread, we have 12 disciples distributing bread. And only then does Jesus say, look, this is my body, which I have shown unto you. You know, it's interesting if you compare the modern sacrament prayers, the bread with the water or the wine, in the prayer for the water, it says, in remembrance of his blood, which was shed for them. But when we bless the bread, the prayer says, in remembrance of his body, and it doesn't say anything more about it. I've always thought that was interesting. Well, here in the book of 3 Nephi, we actually have a further description of Jesus Christ's body. What he says is, do the, you've done this in remembrance of my body, which I have shown unto you. Now, what is the significant, uh, significance of that phrase? Uh, the sacrament is a symbol of a covenant, but these Nephites have not undergone that covenant. They have not been baptized. So what covenant are they renewing? And Jesus tells them right here, he says, do this in remembrance of my body, which I have shown unto you. Every person there present has received the the sacrament, the original sacrament, which is touching the wounds of Jesus. And this tells us a little bit more about, number one, about the resurrection, number two, about baptism, and finally, number three, about the sacrament. The the bread is meant to remind us that the body of Jesus is resurrected. So baptism itself is only a symbol of what they have undergone. They have all of them partaken. It was probably an ordinance of the priesthood to go and touch the wounds of Jesus and become witnesses of his resurrection. This sacrament that they are now partaking of is a renewal of them touching the wounds of Jesus and witnessing that marvelous miracle. And in verses 5 and verse 9, we, we have uh, the idea that they've eaten of the bread and drunk of the wine, and they're in both cases, they're filled. And what does that mean? Did they have, uh, first of all, I think you would read that and wonder, was this like the multiplication of the bread in the New Testament where they, they had enough to eat that they were completely filled in a hunger sense of the word? Well, if you, if you look a couple of chapters later, uh, 3rd Nephi chapter 20, which we don't cover obviously today, but um, Jesus gives them the, the sacrament the next day, and he says to them, uh, He that eateth this bread of my body to his soul, and drinketh this wine, drinketh of my blood to his soul, and his soul shall never hunger nor thirst, but shall be filled. In the next verse, verse 9, uh, Behold, that when the multitude had eaten and drunk, behold, they were filled with the Spirit. So what it means for them to be filled is that their soul no longer hungers. Now think about when you're fasting and your mind is on spiritual things. I know that for me, I'm actually grateful for the opportunity to forget about food for a while. And therefore my soul is filled even though my, my body is hungry, my body is empty. And I think this is the sense in which they were filled. So when you think about that, it's not like they had gallons and gallons of wine each, you know, when you when you read that, you think, oh, they're all filled with wine, right? That's not what's going on. They may have each had but a sip, but a little piece of bread, and it was a, it was a reminder to them of the fact this, this body and blood of Jesus was a, a renewal of the covenant they'd made when they touched the wounds of Jesus. 
and Jesus spends a fair amount of time teaching his disciples how to administer the sacrament, when to administer it, who to withhold it from, how to handle people who are repenting. And then at the end of chapter 18, he gives them the keys for the Holy Ghost. So this is the first day of Jesus's teaching. We're still on the same day that where he arrived at the temple. And only in verse 38 and 39, does the, and again, we mentioned this before, the cloud covers him up and then he ascends into heaven. And that's the end of Jesus's first day. So let's do a quick review. Uh, as if you, if you remember the lesson from last week, we talked about how the Sermon at the Temple, this, these three chapters that sort of Uh, chapters 12 through 14 that parallel Matthew 5 through 7. It's actually a temple text. Uh, Then, So Jesus has instituted, first of all, he's given them this this covenant where they all touch his wounds. He's instituted the worship at the temple. He's given them the sacrament. He's given them patriarchal blessings. He's dedicated the temple. He has given them the means of baptizing and the power to baptize. Now he's given them the keys of, for the giving of the gift of the Holy Ghost. If you remember how long it took Joseph Smith to restore these things, you will have some appreciation for how quickly, just how quickly Jesus is doing his work. And again, Jesus, when he, before he started praying, he said, I, my mind is troubled because of the wickedness of the house of Israel. So now this this contrast where how long it took Jesus to establish his ter- church in the New Testament and how long it takes him to establish his church among the Nephites. It takes him one day. He's given them everything they need to know to live the way we live today. Uh, they Perhaps not the sealing power, but uh, the, the prophet Nephi, son of Nephi, may already have had the sealing power. We know that for many years now, he's been visited by angels every day. So they may have had everything that they needed to have every all the truths that we have today. The interesting thing is that Jesus has much more to teach them. So in the ninth article of faith, when we read that we believe that God will yet reveal many great and important things pertaining to the kingdom of God, you know, often we think, oh, the the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, we have the fullness of the gospel. Well, in this first day, Jesus has given them about as much as we have, maybe maybe a little bit less, maybe not the you know eternal marriage, but most for the most part, they have everything that we have today. And he comes back, he spends a lot more time teaching them a lot more stuff. So the following day is when it really gets interesting. And if we were if we had the same faith, if we were in the same place spiritually as these Nephites were, then Jesus Christ would be able to reveal many great, many more great and important things pertaining to the kingdom of God. Uh, I also, reading, reading these chapters up through chapter 18 here, I get a feel for how the work would have progressed. Now remember, Jesus Christ, it hasn't been long since his resurrection. We get a feel for how it would have been for him to go into the spirit world upon his death. This uh, this event that we have an account of in the 138th section of the Doctrine and Covenants for Jesus to institute his church among those who were in the world of spirits. When a, uh, a people, a church, a body of worshipers is as faithful as these Nephites and the, the more wicked 
part of them had been purged, and so it's the more righteous part of them, and they're ready to worship Jesus, and they have as much faith as they need. To On top of that, as we mentioned last time, it's very likely that the reason they were gathered at this temple is because it's one of these thrice-yearly uh, festivals that are prescribed in the Law of Moses. And so it's the most faithful Nephites because they're the ones who are still keeping rigorously the law of Moses and showing up at the temple three times a year. And when Jesus has a body of worshipers like that, then he can, we, we've, we see here exactly how much he's capable of revealing and sharing when the, when the preparation is such that people are ready to receive. So what would it have been like for him to visit the spirit world with all of those prophets and faithful spirits waiting? It would have been even faster. Jesus would have been able to accomplish so much in those three days that he set them up for the thousands of years that would follow. Now in chapter 19, the following day, first of all, we have the story of what happens overnight. And we we have a, an account that there were people who were laboring all throughout the night so that they could be there on the morrow when Jesus would show himself again unto the people. Now, when we think about people laboring all that night to be there, uh, we have to realize that somebody had to go all the way to where they lived. So let's say you live 10 miles from the temple. Somebody had to travel those 10 miles to tell you that you have to labor all night to get to the temple the next day. So there were many people who were at the temple. There, there were 2,500 people, men, women, and children, right? Roughly 2,500 people witnessing this first day. And you know that Jesus is coming the next day. You want to be there. There's nothing you won't do to be there. And yet you are willing to walk not only 10 miles to tell somebody else to come, labor all night to be there the next day, but then walk back. You are willing to sacrifice your sleep and uh, therefore uh, your alertness the following day, that this is going to be precious attention to you. You're willing to not sleep the whole night so that you can bring somebody else to Jesus. And then those people, they hear about something so glorious that they're willing to walk all night to present themselves at the temple the following day. Now, the most blessed people, obviously, are those who had been observant in the law of Moses, assuming that our uh, earlier guess is correct, that this is on one of these festivals, po- possibly the, the day of Pentecosts or the Feast of Weeks. Now, if you showed up for the Feast of Weeks at the temple, then you were blessed enough to see Jesus's first day of teaching. And if not, then hopefully you were blessed enough to have someone who loved you enough that they would undertake this journey to travel all through the night It wasn't just the people who were trying to see Jesus the next day. It was also the people who were trying to get them there, who worked all night. This is my point. And really where I'm going with this is, at its best, or I I should say in a perfect world, or at its culmination, in its final and best manifestation, this is what missionary work looks like. People who would work all through the night and give up so much give up their alertness, who would make great sacrifices to bring somebody else unto the glory of meeting their Lord Jesus Christ. And then those who hear the message would be willing to travel through the night if they had to, to hear that word. So I'm not saying that this. if, if you don't experience this, you're doing something wrong. 
I'm saying this is how good missionary work can get when it is perfectly done and when it is perfectly received. This is what it looks like. This is the urgency and the beauty and the perfection of the message of meeting with your Savior, with Jesus Christ. And so the more we can be, uh, the, the closer we can be to feeling like we meet our Savior when we go to church, then the more we'll be like these, these missionaries who traveled through the night to bring those they loved to come back to meet Jesus the next day. When the Nephites gather at the temple the following day, then they, the first thing that they do, their first priority is to follow the commandments that they already have from Jesus. Those commandments were to baptize everybody. And so therefore, their first one baptizes the prophet, Nephi. They're all baptized into this new covenant. In, the, in Exodus chapter 19 and 20, the, the Israelites are given this covenant uh, known as the Old Testament. They are, God says to them, I will be unto you as God and you will be unto me a people. And this is our covenant. This is our testament. The New Testament is what Jesus has just been teaching them. You are going to pray to the Father in my name. You're going to touch my wounds and know that I have died for you. And you're going to remember that every week, every time you meet together. You're going to take these symbols of that memory. And it is in my name that you will be saved. This is the New Testament, the new covenant. This is the new relationship between God and his people. And in that covenant, in that testament, they're all being baptized. And they're baptized not only by water, but they've been given this power to receive the gift of fire and the gift of the Holy Ghost. And so, as soon as they're all baptized, then they perform this ordinance as well. Interestingly enough, it is not until they're finished, and we can guess that there are many more than 2,500 people now. So this is a massive baptism, a group baptism and group confirmation. And once it's all done, only then does Jesus show himself. So he has revealed to these Nephites a certain amount of light and knowledge. And once they've acted upon it, then he can manifest himself to them again. But until they do, then he's powerless to show up. I shouldn't say powerless, but he is not willing to show up. Now in verses, the it, the first thing the Nephites pray for, they pray for the gift of the Holy Ghost. Now, Jesus has just finished telling them the, the day before that whatever they ask in his name, they will receive. They could receive anything in the whole world. I think it's so wonderful that the thing they're praying for right now is that the Holy Ghost will come upon them. They know they have the power to say to each other, receive the Holy Ghost, but they also know that it's Jesus and it's the Father that actually do the bestowing of that gift. And so they have to pray. Each time they have to pray that the Holy Ghost will actually come. And that's what Jesus prays for. Okay, so Jesus is now among them. And he sees what they're doing. They're all performing faithfully the commandments he's given. And he, it makes him so happy. So in verses 17 through 36, through the end of the chapter, these are the prayers of Jesus now for the people uh, that he's among. All of these people on the second day that have joined him. And it's reminiscent of the great intercessory prayer that Jesus offers for the apostles in John chapter 17. He prays that he can be one with everyone that is here the same way that he's one with the Father. This is, uh, again, that inter intercessory prayer in John and this intercessory prayer here are great examples of why 
we know that Jesus and the Father are two different people. Jesus would not have to pray to the Father that we could we need to be one if they were already the same being. And he would also not say, I'm going to be one with the disciples in the same way that I'm one with you. If that were the case, then they would all be one being, and which is obviously not true. Now, the first time Jesus prays, the, the disciples and those present, they've all now received the gift of the Holy Ghost. And we can presume that the Holy Ghost has been granted to them. And Jesus says, I pray that those who receive their words, right? There are a lot of Nephites who were not here present today. Those who hear about this day and then have the Holy Ghost given to them, I pray that they will receive the Holy Ghost. Then Jesus returns from that prayer and he sees that the, the disciples and those people that are hearing their words and everyone who's meeting with Jesus who's received the gift of the Holy Ghost, they've all been purified. So then Jesus goes back and prays to the Father again. Each time the whole crowd hears his entire prayer. And uh, if you've ever been in a crowd of 2,500 people, you know that you can't, just, you can't just speak and have everyone hear you. And this crowd now is probably triple or quadruple that size. And so they all hear Jesus, which means that his voice is going to each of them individually using the same power that he used in chapter 9. His second prayer is that now God will purify everyone who hears their words. These people who are present, they're going to go and spread the word. They're, they're all going to become missionaries, where they all run and tell everyone, come and see Jesus. But this time, there's no Jesus to see at the temple. They have to believe on their words. This is Jesus asking the Father for this wonderful blessing. Now, it's interesting because Jesus is giving this example of prayer so that we understand that even Jesus asks the Father for those blessings of which he has a desire to receive. Jesus is giving us an example of ask and you shall receive. Jesus has no doubt, there is no doubt, that Jesus' prayer will be answered. The Father will give him exactly what he asks for because he knows what to ask for. He knows exactly how to grant these blessings. He knows how to prepare uh, and do his part so that these blessings will be granted. But he still has to ask. He doesn't just nod his head and make it so. He's willing to humble himself before the Father and acknowledge that good gifts come from God and ask. Now, in uh, the third time he prays, we have this a repeat of this experience where his words cannot be written, neither can they be uttered by man. And so we're left to guess, is it because they're too sacred? Is it because they're too individual? Or is it because they're too many? These are the three possibilities. And my guess is it's a combination of all three. Everyone there present is receiving so much information that is about them personally, and it's so sacred that these words simply cannot be uttered. They are called words here in 3 Nephi chapter 19. But it may have been that they weren't words at all, that words was the only way they could be described, these messages, that it, it might have been just spiritual communication, pure knowledge and wisdom imparted from one spirit to another. We'll never, well, I shouldn't say we'll never know, but uh, we don't have a way right now of figuring out what this was like. If we remain faithful, it's my belief we'll all have an experience like this. Uh, it, whether we live until the day of the second coming or whether uh, we experience this after this mortal life, this will be what our reunion with Jesus will resemble, will be him imparting knowledge to us that is individual, that is sacred, 
and that is voluminous beyond all comprehension. And I think that's a great lesson to take with us as the closing message of this episode. Uh, you, you will read in 35, 19, verse 35, Jesus says, So great faith have I never seen among all the Jews, wherefore I could not show unto them so great miracles, because of their unbelief. So on this day, the second day of teaching, Jesus only appeared after the people had shown they were willing to listen to the prophets. And once they were willing to listen to the prophets and display their belief by being baptized, by receiving the gift of the Holy Ghost, by traveling throughout the night, also to be there to see Jesus, that was when he was able to appear among them. And he was able to reveal greater and greater things the more he saw of their faith. So let's keep that in mind this conference weekend as we have the words of the prophets before us, that we can unlock greater and greater mysteries, revelations, and blessings as we show our faith unto our Lord Jesus Christ. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. This has been Gospel Doctrine, a nonprofit podcast hosted and produced by Mark Holt with bumper music by Kendra Holt. Gospel Doctrine is not affiliated with nor endorsed by The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints.